Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. In your face. The beautiful voice of Alanis Morissette, that I would be good. It's four after four. You are on In Your Face on 3CR with James and MV. Behind the panel, great show this week. MV lined up. Incredible. I can't wait. It's jam-packed. Morris Naggington from the University of Manchester is in the studio to chat with us about his Kim Sex research. We also will be talking to Julian Wah, whose new single Bloom comes out today. He's a musician from Queensland. And Carolyn Riddler joins us a bit later from Switchboards Queer and Trans Indigenous and or People of Colour or Faith Project. Stick around with us in your face till five o'clock here on 3CR. Please be aware that the next interview that you're about to hear contains descriptions of drug use and or drug paraphernalia, sex and strong themes and language that may be distressing to some listeners. So if this type of content is a trigger for you, please rejoin us in about 15 minutes. And just as a disclaimer, 3CR does not condone the use of illicit substances. Dr. Morris Naggington is visiting Australia from the University of Manchester in the UK and this week he presented a paper at La Trobe University titled The Paradox of Chemsex, Bringing People Together and Breaking the Gay Community Apart. And Dr. Naggington joins us in the studio. Welcome to Melbourne, Morris. Thank you. Hello. Hello, hello, hello. First of all, for listeners who don't know, what is chemsex? Um, yeah, so it's it's a difficult thing to define to an extent, but... I think kind of one of the broadest definitions you can give for it is um, where people, um, often stereotypically gay identifying men, um, use drugs to um, either enhance or change the sexual experiences they have. Um, it's often done with other people, um, sometimes in group settings, um, but clearly it isn't just limited to that those groups of people um and i think in the uk at least um a, a huge range of different drugs are used so methamphetamine um, mdma ketamine alcohol cannabis um and the participants that i'm working with have, have have used a very wide range of drugs so you're interviewing 20 gay men in manchester you're interviewing them four times over two years tell us yeah. about the gay scene in manchester yeah, so the gay scene in Manchester um, is is very large for the size of the city. So Manchester's about um, 2.7... Well, Greater Manchester's about 2.7 million people. Um, but Manchester has had a very long history of developing its gay scene um, to an extent that's been supported by the city council. Um, but then also Manchester has a very large and vibrant, what people would often term kind of alternative or queer scene as well. Um, and and all of those kind of filter into the way in which people are able to live their lives in the spaces that are available. So unlike, say, some cities um, like London or Paris, where we've seen a loss of uh, LGBT spaces, um, we haven't really seen that in Manchester maybe yet. There is redevelopment happening and at the minute, um, but it hasn't really encroached into the spaces that largely that, that gay men have. Your paper says Manchester hasn't been subordinated to large-scale gentrification like other cities. How has that influenced the chemsex gay culture there? 
Yeah, well, I mean, there's a researcher um, in the UK, Jamie Hakim, who has spoken about um, how that has affected um, London. And he basically says that the large scale um, removal of gay spaces in London, particularly around Vauxhall, um, has led to gay men just finding other ways to be with each other. Um, So lots of the sex clubs, lots of the saunas, lots of the bars closed down around Vauxhall in London. Um, And so Jamie reads that as a kind of neoliberalisation of the space, um, particularly the new US embassy open there. um, And they were trying to sort of clean up the space is what Jamie would argue. Um, Whereas I say Manchester hasn't seen that. Um, We just the the Canal Street area has had some businesses coming in um, and there is some small scale redevelopment. We are going to lose one bar in the next couple of years that's pretty much definite but manchester still has an edge manchester does still have quite an edge there's still a lot of old mills there's still um you know a lot of the post-industrial architecture is still there um there's lots of space for artists for new club nights to grow and develop and try themselves out um now i mean again that is subject to things changing you do get a sense that the city is being more expensive to live in so you know roughly rental and property has increased by about 30 percent over the past five years wages have not so that's maybe being squeezed but i don't think it's being squeezed out at the moment we're talking now so your paper's called The Paradox of Chemsex, Bringing mm. People Together and Breaking the Gay Community Apart. To what extent is it accurate that chemsex is breaking the gay community apart and destroying gay scenes around the world? Yeah, I mean, I think that the interesting thing is, I mean, you, it's something that's repeated, either the word destruction or the idea of destruction, that sex and drugs, chemsex, is destroying the gay scene. Especially when people think of crystal methamphetamine. Especially when people think of that, Yeah. Um, and I think particularly in New York, that was a very strong theme. Um, I think because people say that that's happening here, particularly yeah. in relation to Sydney first and then Melbourne. Yeah. Um, and I mean, I can't, I can't speak for those two cities, but, um, that's certainly not where we're seeing the pattern in Manchester. Mm. Um, but also we have to, we have to look at kind of, well, what are we thinking is, is being destroyed? Mm. Um, and very often the gay scene is, um, and I am using the word gay scene informally here rather than LGBT, um, a lot of the the spaces where gay men socialise are very commercial, very profitable spaces um, and allow very particular forms of socialising to happen. And that's always kind of uncritically accepted as always good spaces to have and to go to. Um, and that's fine. That's how it's set up. When we talk about chemsex destroying it, it's kind of assumed as this always positive place to be. Mm. Um, and I think we know it's not. People can fall into the gay scene and um, and experience alcohol difficulties or relationship difficulties or all sorts of things. So the underlying um, issues are also relevant, I guess, when considering chemsex and its impacts. Yeah, but it's also just saying that we're not destroying something that is somehow innocent. Um, the, the gay scene has its wonders, but it also has its its discontents and its difficulties as well your paper also talks about capitalism how is chemsex impacting on gay capitalism i.e gay commercial venues that traditionally were the centers of gay communities in some cities yeah um i mean so we see this we see this idea that um 
that gay men having sex and chemsex is mostly occurring in in private venues, so people's houses. Sometimes. So they're not going out drinking? No, so they're not going out drinking. Um, they're usually kind of more in hotel rooms or their houses or hooking up um, from their own you know, their own living room and inviting people over, one person or people. But they're not going to these commercial venues um, where, which are based, you know, have a lot of their commerce is based around alcohol sales um, and entry fees. Um, so that's pulling capital away, it's pulling money away. Um, and I think that's how the destruction is often kind of um, worried about because there is, um, colleague David Alderson talks about this sort of mm. entrepreneurial class which have vested interests. And so it's not so much about saying chemsex is good or bad or the gay scene is good or bad, but just trying to unpick what some of the dynamics are about how they're being constructed as good or bad. To what extent is the story of chemsex linked to new technologies and sex apps like mm. Grinder and Scruff? And does this tap into the contention that there is no natural gay scene anymore? Yeah, and I mean, you you can look at... There's, there's so many representations over at least the past 50 years of gay men um, having sex on drugs. And also, um, there's a wonderful researcher, um, Alex Dimmock and uh, Leah Moyle, um, and Ben mentioned actually, at um, Royal Holloway in London, looking at the archive more with the view of not gay men, and they're not excluding them, but it's a very broader archive. And we see in that archive that there are people of opposite sex persuasions engaging in sex and drugs. Um, there's a film by Warren Sonbo from like the 1960s with two gay men injecting methamphetamine and having sex. Um, so this idea that it's a new thing is is very problematic. So rather really the drugs kind of go in cycles, don't they? They do to an extent, um, yeah. I mean, I think you do You do see kind of, well, if you... It's almost like whack-a-mole. You push one down and another one will come up. Um, and the problem is when you push one down, sometimes there are sort of what you might call native harm reduction strategies. People have learned how to reduce the harm of a particular drug. Um, and, you know, drugs are always... Drugs always have side effects. I'm also a nurse um, and no drug is safe. Um, regardless Um, but people do learn what side effects to look out for Um, but if you then squeeze that one um, and you know this would be the argument of people like David Nutt that if you if you reduce one particular drug use people will often segue into another one and then they they move around addictions and they move around and then and but then those drugs act differently they have different half-lives they have different side effects um, and and then people have to almost learn that again. Um, and dr- also drug purity can um, vary a heck of a lot. It's an issue we're facing in the UK at the moment, that um, ecstasy, MDMA, um, back in about 2008, was very unpure. Um, but then new manufacturing processes came about and it's become very pure again. So we're actually seeing overdoses of MDMA because of this squeeze on the MDMA market, which reduced purity, and then it's gone back up. Now there's new supply routes and manufacturing processes so again we see we see well-intentioned politicians trying to reduce harm we see well-intentioned health policy advocates trying to reduce harm but it's almost you do kind of put pressure at one end and something else comes out the other end of unintended consequences no one's intending to increase drug harms when they bring out these policies but often they do your paper talks about a fall from innocence for the gay scene is kim six a fall from innocence for the gay scene and if so how yeah. Um, <laughs> What's it ever innocent? Um, yeah, I mean, I think 
I, I this is kind of specific reference to a particular scene in a particular film, um, the chemsex film by Vice. Um, because your research does also tap into films and novels and yeah. plays. There's a popular culture element beyond just the clubbing scene. Yeah, and again, it goes back to the point I was making earlier about the gay scene always being this kind of warm, welcoming space, um, almost kind of this Garden of Eden for for gay men, which it it can see. You know, sometimes like the first time you go into a gay bar, um, I think we've a lot of us have got that experience of it is like this kind of Garden of Eden place. And um, I cut a bit out of the paper actually, but um, I was looking at a poem by Andrew McMillan called Arrival. And it really gives you that wonderful sense of how the gay scene and how gay spaces help you almost arrive at yourself. Um, but also we, you know, that we have to be critical about the gay scene not actually being this wonderful Garden of Eden. Yep. Yep. Your paper quotes David Alderson's work. Mm. You alluded to him before. Uh, the work that you refer to is called Sex Needs and Queer Culture from Liberation to Post Gay. Yeah. Define post gay. Oh, God. I don't think I can because I didn't really read that book chapter. <laughs> Let's just skip over that. Sorry, David. <laughs> so, when can we expect to see your research completed and how will people be able to access it? Um, yeah. So, um, I. <laughs> so I um I've still I mean I'm doing interviews for another year yet pretty much exactly so I'm almost exactly halfway through um the empirical side of it so I'm going back um and I'll be restarting interviews about September. So how'd you get these guys? Did you use mm. six apps like Grinder and Scruff yeah. to kind of track so, them down? Yeah. So the only way I recruited people in the end was through Grinder. Um, why Grinder? Why Grinder? So the going back to the film Chemsex, they recruited through a sexual health clinic. And my kind of reticence about using a sexual health clinic was that people regularly attending the the chemsex services at sexual health clinics will have some sort of problem. And that's fine if you want to represent that end of chemsex. But I wanted to kind of enter into that culture through the way it primarily functions, which is not in a clinic. No one goes to a clinic to have chemsex. They go to a clinic because they've got a problem with chemsex. Um, so I wanted to kind of go in through the, the hookup app world um, to get a, maybe a slightly broader picture of the people engaging in it. Now, I equally also didn't recruit through uh, websites like BBRT and, um, and other websites um, because those were also maybe more exclusively or primarily for people seeking chemsex. And it was a very strong area there. So I went to Grinder, which is this much more generic place for people to meet up, where sometimes sometimes people were looking for chemsex, sometimes they're not. Um, and so that's why I went through Grinder. Did you consider recruiting people like, you know, face-to-face by going to bars and actually meeting people or going to sex on-premises venues and doing it? Like, why why apps as opposed to yeah, face-to-face I mean, reality? A lot of that is to do with university ethics in that they there's generally a requirement for your recruitment to be more passive so people approach you. I did have a poster developed, um, but in the end, because the Grinder recruitment was working quite well, in fact, very well. Um, I decided to kind of keep my recruitment stream fairly simple, just a purely pragmatic point of view. I'm the only one doing the research and I have other things to do in my job as well. So I just I was more pragmatic choice just to stick to Grinder, really. Fascinating stuff. Uh, Morris Naggington, Dr. Morris Naggington <laughs> from the University of Manchester. Thank you so much for joining us today on 3CR. Great. Thank you for inviting me. And if any of this information has raised any questions for you or caused you distress, please call Lifeline on 13 11 14 or visit lifeline.org.au 
or direct line 1-800-888-236 or at directline.org.au or Turning Points, which is an alcohol and drug information service on 1-800-250-015 or look them up at turningpoint.org.au and we'll place all those details on our website after the show. Sure, Will. 20 after 4, you are on In Your Face on 3CR. Up next, uh, Queensland musician Julian Moir uh, talking about his new track, Bloom, which was uh, released today and here it is.
International Overdose Awareness Day is held annually on the 31st of August. It is a day to raise awareness of overdose, reduce the stigma of drug-related death, and acknowledge the grief felt by family and friends of those who have died. With the ongoing stigmatisation and criminalisation of people who consume drugs in Australia, International Overdose Awareness Day is as important as ever. This year, 3CR will be broadcasting a special half-hour program at 10am on Friday the 31st of August. Join us for a panel discussion looking at current efforts to reduce the tragic loss of life from overdose in Australia. Experts will offer perspectives from the fields of research, service delivery and, most importantly, peers in the community. One love to all the people in Melbourne. Please come down to Rasta's Journey Home, a movie made by Dr. Maria Stratford. Special benefit screening, it's on Tuesday, 28 August 2018, 6.15pm to 7.30pm. Tonbury Picture House, 802 High Street, Tonbury. Finalist Africa World Documentary Film Festival. And it's on Ethnograph Film Official Selections and Harlem International Film Festival 2017. You can get a ticket at the venue. Peace and love. You're listening to 3CR Radio. Yes, you are indeed. It's 23 after 4. You're on In Your Face on 3CR with James and MV behind the panel. And before those promos, we heard from the wonderful Julian Wah and their newly released track, Bloom, which came out today. And in fact, we have the musician on the line right now from Queensland. Good afternoon, Julian. Welcome to 3CR. Hello there. How are you? I'm very, very well indeed. Love your track, Bloom. Tell us what it's about. Oh, that's a difficult one. Really? Uh, bloom. It's really, uh, well, the, the, the lyrics actually say just never bloom. So, so really it's about growing up, I suppose, and, and not wanting to grow up. Growing up too fast, if you know what I mean. Um, it's definitely a, uh, it's a track I've actually had for about three years um, that I just kind of uh, decided to to, uh, to release. I figured it would be something that people would find uh, somewhat interesting and intriguing is definitely a um yeah uh, i've had i've actually had mixed uh, mixed comments with it because some people uh, aren't quite sure of uh yeah uh, the uh it's, it's a very intricate song if you know what i mean so it's not it's not your typical commercial track but i'm i'm very proud tell us about the vocals on the track is it you is it computerized is it somebody else like uh who's doing the it's, vocals no it's it, it's well, it's all me. I, uh, I, so basically, I, I, I produce and and write everything and record everything. I do everything myself. Um, so the vocals are very much. Um, I like to I like to record vocals differently. Pretty much every time I record, I just like to experiment with every track I do. And um, yeah, I, I, I very much. Uh, that's that's actually like my favourite part of recording vocals. Are there any artists in particular that you would say uh, influence your sound? Oh, okay. Um, uh, <laughs> to be honest, I don't really listen to much modern music. I listen to a lot of um, the Beach Boys, the Smiths, the Kinks, um, you know, Rolling Stones, old, older bands, Iggy Pop. Um, yeah, I, I, I kind of, 
I try to uh, to go back to uh, to you know the people that I uh, that I really um, yeah that I really respect as as, as musicians, and I and I just kind of figure it's the best way to go to not jump on you know the the next bandwagon. You, you got to do things yourself and uh, in your own way, and I think that's kind of you know. The the only way to do it to have longevity in in this in this field, if you know what I mean, you have to be able to be original. Do you find that those artists have a musical basis that 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 puts an artist such as yourself in good stead, and that even though your sound and your work is vastly different to the Beach Boys or the Rolling Stones, that that musical <laughs> kind of you know groundedness and and technical prowess um, gives you a great grounding. Yeah. Oh, definitely, definitely. Yeah, I, I learn a lot of structure uh, from them, and and um, Beach Boys in particular are fantastic for for mixing that up and and just creating. A, I'm I'm very much into um, things have to sound very pretty to me. They have to be very melodic, and uh, uh, yeah, I can't. It's like I can't listen to. Um, you know, death metal and stuff like that. Things have to be things have to be very melodic for me. And is so that the Rolling Stones Beach Boys influence that even though even though it's very different exactly. to your work, exactly. it is very melodic. Yes, yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's 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 what I'm going for. I'm I'm hoping that people can't quite hear the influences or can't quite piece together the influences um in my music, if you know what I mean. I I, I want it to sound, you know, as fresh as possible. And uh, and I think I, I think I've done that with this this EP, uh, the or the last EP that I just released, and um, yeah, and the single, of course, it has uh, another track called Frankenstein on it, which is yeah, which is uh, somewhat <laughs> I would say more unique than than Blue. So you're from Queensland. Uh, whereabouts in Queensland are you based? Uh, Brisbane. I, I, I go back and forth to Brisbane. I actually live in uh, a, place, a, a place called Bagara. I live right next to the beach right now, but but uh, my partner lives in uh, in Brisbane, so I kind of uh, go back and forth. And I'm actually from uh, London uh, originally, so so I've been here for about 15 years, something like that. Um, yeah, and I've I, I've learned from uh, from the best Aussie musicians, in my opinion. Uh, I don't know whether you've heard of a band called Youth Group. I have indeed. They're, they're yeah. They're, they're a big deal to me. They're, they're a big deal to me and, and everyone around me, if you know what I mean. Every musician I, I associate myself with, you got to like youth group. <laughs> you got to like youth group and you got to like um, the Vines, obviously, are fantastic. Tame and Parlor are, are, are wonderful. Um, uh, what about the Saints? They're a, they're a um, revered Queensland band. The Saints? Yeah. You know, I, haven't, I haven't heard much of them, but I, but I have heard of them. Uh, I better get into that, huh? They're pretty good. Now, look, I'm going to ask you a weather question because I'm from Melbourne, so we're pretty weather-focused. Um, yeah. Some people say Melbourne's weather has profound effects on its people and its culture. To what extent would you say that Queensland's climate influences the moods of your music and the way you approach it? Well, so the interesting thing about that is I moved into my own place not too long ago, as I said, by the beach, and that heavily influenced um just my writing in general, I noticed obviously I was <laughs> I was a lot more relaxed about the things that I did. I was I was far less worried about how things are perceived and um, I, yeah, I, I think um, I think the Queensland the, the Queensland way of life is a very you know, it's a very relaxed way of uh, of life and 
and the weather here is is a bit all over the place. To be honest, I'm I'm a bit of a I'm a bit of a hermit when it comes to uh, to that sort of thing. Like I kind of just stay inside and, and record. I go to work and then I come back and I record, record, record. Like right now, I'm, I'm literally recording. As soon as I get off the phone, I'll, wow. I'll, I'll start recording for the album again. So yeah, is music no, like I, an addiction for you? That. Is music production like an addiction for you almost? It's obviously something that you do whenever you've got some spare time, yeah? It's therapeutic. It's, it's very much therapeutic for me. I find that when I don't write or when I don't record, sounds so cliche, of course, but yeah, when I don't, uh, when I don't create, I, uh, I find that my, my, my moods uh, aren't exactly... Uh, centered if you know what i mean so so i find that i i, I almost have to do it um i used to i used to exercise you know go to the gym and and, and do different things and and i to, to fill the void and uh you know i soon realized because uh, i took a, i took about a, maybe four years off of uh, of writing and stuff not too long ago i was in i was in several bands and we were traveling and touring and um yeah and then i had some time off and then i just felt like you know it's uh, it's time, it's time. So tell us about the other bands you were in. Uh, I was in a band called Penguin Kings for about eight years. Oh wow, great um, name! <laughs> thank you so much. Yeah, we were we were travelling around Australia, and and it was with my cousin and my brother. Um, it was fantastic. I loved it. My brother is actually. Um, Harry Hart. I don't know whether you whether you've ever heard of Harry Hart, but he's. Um, He's also an up-and-coming musician. He's been about for, for quite a while now, actually, really. But, um, yeah, he's all over Triple J, and, uh, yeah, he's doing well for himself. But So I've, I've had a, a very good, um, you know, I've had, a, a, I've, had, I've had it good. I've had, I've had great people around me. So um, when can we expect to hear your next album coming out? Oh, the album. Uh, the album will be... Uh, I would think at the end of the year. Um, I'm aiming for the end of the year. I've actually got it pretty much recorded, but because I'm so, uh, um, you know, pedantic about certain things and meticulous, and yeah, ever, it, it will it will be out when I uh, when I feel it, it's uh, it's time, if you know what I mean. So with the EP, um, it was actually done for about five to six months before I released it just because I needed that time to sit on it to make sure that it, you know, that it's ready for people to, to, to hear it. I, I, I just, I'm, I'm strange with this stuff. I, uh, I need to, um, yeah, it needs, it needs to be right and it needs to feel right. You sound like you're a perfectionist. Uh, heavily, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm very much a perfectionist in, in, in music, in nothing else in life other than music, if you know what I mean. It music sounds like a good way to be. Yeah. Now, we've got a track of yours to play. It's called Frankensteinia. Now, tell us what it's about, or Frankensteinia. Okay, so, yeah, Frankensteinia. So this this is an odd one, but um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a wrestling move. I used to watch wrestling when I was younger, and there's a wrestling move where you kind of flip someone upside down. You kind of... Um, you kind of make them go head over heels. Um, and um, <laughs> that's kind of what it was about. It wow. was about me falling head over heels. And also it was about Frankensteiner, who is my girlfriend, <laughs> who I basically pieced back together, if you understand. And in the song, you'll actually be able to hear sort of drilling and stuff like that, which is supposed to be themed, 
you know, into that Frankenstein world. Wow. You are such a creative thinker and, and that really shows with your music. I never would have thought that track was kind of linked to all of that. <laughs> I know. I, yeah, it does, it does require, most of it I feel requires an explanation. Um, I feel like it's far more interesting when you have the explanation. Um, so, yeah, perhaps I'll, uh, perhaps I'll just have to uh, focus on, on getting more of that out there. I feel like people would like that. Now, Frankenstein and Bloom, of course, Bloom was released today. They're available on Bandcamp. But give us a plug for your website so people can learn more about you and, and get some links to your music through it. Well, I think uh, we'll, we'll be at julianwire.com. Uh, we'll, we'll be uh, up and running uh, this week. And uh, also our Twitter page, which is our, our main contact with the outside world, um, and uh, and the Bandcamp page, and of course Spotify and Apple Music. So we're we're all over. We're Good all stuff, over. Julian Wah. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Congratulations with your music. Congratulations on the release today of Bloom. And uh, you must come back on the show when your album's out, and uh, we'll hear some more of your awesome music. Thank you so much for joining us on Three CR today. Thank you so much. I really appreciated it. Julian Wah, there. It's uh, twenty-five to five. You are on in your face on Three CR, and here's their track, Frankensteinia. <laughs> It's 20 to 5, right? In your face on 3CL, James and MV behind the panel, while Caroline Riddler is the coordinator of Switchboards Queer and Trans Indigenous and or People of Colour or Faith Project, and she joins us in the studio. Welcome, Caroline. Thank you. It's a great pleasure to have you here at 3CR. Now, your project uh, uses approaches taken from racial literacy and anti-racist organising to inform professional development, community consultation and recruitment. Tell us more about how it does that. Oh, well, I guess it's, yeah, it's taking ideas from racial literacy, which is the study of uh, racism and applying it to an LGBT uh, peer-based counselling and visiting service. Um, So it's looking at, uh, I guess, the way Switchboard uh, views its clients, views itself, its interactions with clients of colour and looking to see how it could have better equity for LGBT people of colour um, within the organisation, outside of the organisation, in other LGBT 
you know, community-based organisations as well, locally, that kind of stuff, yeah. Are you finding there's more demand for your services now that the marriage equality vote has happened, that there's kind of like been a clearing of the air in the community and, and, and community organisations can deal with these issues more readily? Oh, oh, I never really thought about it that way. Um, I think that it, it it started before before that, that time, Um the postal survey survey definitely exacerbated some things, I would say. Really? So it was a trigger? Because uh, we're hearing that a lot on the show. Yeah, like it, it I, I don't think it was the best time for, I guess, LGBT uh, people of colour, like looking at the way um, different, uh, I guess, the, the narratives of, of uh, LGBT people of colour being, you know, represented during that time. It, it wasn't so great. Um but it it certainly existed before that, but there there has been like a little bit more, like maybe in the past five years or so, more um, focus on communities of color within L- the LGBT sector. I think, um, but it's very very small right now. It perhaps it it will expand a bit in the future. Yeah. So tell us about the organisations that you work with. I imagine they're a pretty broad church. Some are pretty straight. Others are, are queer. Is that the case? It's been mostly LGBT sort of based organisations, to be honest, right, right now. Um, it's just been working with, you know, our partners, but um, in like like con- consultation, like looking at, you know, people's training or delivering training, that kind of thing. Um, but it's been a little bit of a mix of like training externally with other LGBT organisations, but then also training within Switchboard, like training the volunteers or looking at professional development for like the staff and, and, and volunteers and things like that. Are LGBTI organisations saying to you that there's a lot of racism within the community that they need assistance with? Yeah, absolutely. A, a lot of... Um, I, I'm not so, so sure about, you know, the opinions of like, you know, the, the legit formal opinions of LGBT organisations, but I suppose in conversations with people, um, particularly um, people of colour working within those organisations or are receiving their services or are just in the community um, more generally, um, yeah, they are expressing that racism is definitely something that, you know, still happens in the LGBT community just as much as it happens in the non-LGBT community. Tell us about the work you do specifically uh addressing Indigenous and Torres Strait Islander issues? Well, that's not really something that I can really speak to personally as a non-Indigenous person, but it it is something that I think that Switchboard as an organisation is looking to address and make better equity for um, within the organisation and how it, it delivers its service. And tell us about the focus that you have on gender diversity. It seems that gender diversity is very much becoming a priority for the LGBTIQ community. Would you say that's the case? Gender diversity? Absolutely. Yeah, sorry, can you can you explain what you mean by that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So are yeah. you finding that organisations are asking you to work with them so they can be more gender diverse inclusive? Oh, okay. Um, I guess so. I, I think that there are probably organisations that would be much better. Uh, no, not not switchboard, but I, I guess more personally as working from the project as a cisgender person. Um, there's other organisations that people have been going to for that, like um, Transgender Victoria, uh, uh, the... I think it's Zoe Bell project um, that do training on um, trans and gender diverse um, best practice within organizations and uh, like spearheading really good training 
around those So it issues. sounds like a yeah. real priority for your project is, is addressing racism. And I yeah. imagine intersectionality is, is something that, that you deal with a lot. Can you define intersectionality for our listeners that may not be familiar yeah, with it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so intersectionality is a theory of oppression that was coined by the black feminist legal scholar, philosopher Kimberly Crenshaw. And it's a theory not of necessarily difference, but it's a theory of um, compacting oppression. Um, and it's rooted from this story, this kind of narrative that Kimberly Crenshaw talks a lot in her writing of um, looking at, say, um, gender discrimination uh, legislation and uh, race-based uh, discrimination laws and finding that uh, African-American women were falling through the cracks because when they were filing cases for, you know, uh, discrimination in the workplace, um, the way that the legislators understood gender-based oppression was only about white women and the way that they understood race-based discrimination was only affecting, you know, African-American men. And so there was just nothing for people who experienced both oppressions. And I guess it's really good to always understand that that's where that's where the theory comes from, and um, it speaks to um, compounding oppressions, not necessarily the way I guess diversity sort of ideas um, w- would have it. It's it's much more about um, structural oppression and the way that it, it impacts um, double or triple or quadruple on on any given um, person or community. And um, the compounding of those disadvantages, of course, means that, you know, black women, for example, in the US are much more likely to have HIV or become HIV positive and have other health issues than, say, many white women. Yeah, right. I, I, I wasn't aware of that. Yeah, yeah it's the biggest group, actually, of um, HIV seroconversions in the US, black women. Okay. So tell us more about Kimberly Kershaw and, uh, or Kenshaw. And, 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 um, yeah, yeah. Tell us more about her. She sounds fascinating. Yeah, she is really interesting. She's um, the mother of intersectionality, really, isn't she? Yeah, she she coined the phrase, and I guess it it really um, it it you know began conversations that were already happening and have always been happening, but really speaking to the way you know movements have centered the thoughts, the experiences, the narratives, the opinions, the priorities of generally the most privileged group of people within that movement. So. For women's organising, it has been, you know, white, cis, uh, upper middle class, white women, right? Or in um, LGBT organising, it's been generally white, cis men who are gay. Um, Or, you know, uh, for, you know, racial justice movements, it's also centering men as well. So I think that um, it's really been speaking to all of these movements um, around the world that have been doing a great job but could be you know, better at um, understanding the intersectionality of that experience. Now, your project offers self-reflexivity on power and inequality. Can you define that? Yeah, I guess it's a very fancy way, (laughs) a very fancy way of talking about learning about what brings you to the conversation and how um, the powers, the privileges and the oppressions that you experience in your life might shape um, the way you understand things and the way you behave with one another. So, um, like understanding that um, my privilege, as say, like a, a settler cisgender person, would affect my queerness. You know, it would affect the way that I experience that. Um, and for other people, understanding that their whiteness affects the way they experience 
their queerness or, or um, their experience of the community and understanding how it shapes the way they even understand our issues or what is actually a collective priority might be affected by their own positioning in the world and what's shaped them. So it really helps people to look at themselves and understand that, you know, they're not an island, they're part of a community and people yeah. have different perspectives and experiences and that what's, you know, their experience may not be somebody else's. Absolutely. And um, that they're, I guess, like what they imagine as like an LGBT issue, it might be very, very shaped from like where they come from or, or what's happened to them in their lives and um, how how they've experienced that you know, um, in their location in the world as white or cis or a settler, non-Indigenous person or, you know, able-bodied or, you know, upper class. And that really, really shapes what people think are LGBT issues, I think. So your project really is kind of working with the community to be more self-aware. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, I would hope so. (laughs) So from the the switchboard, you used to be called the Gay and Lesbian Switchboard. Now it's called Switchboard Victoria. Tell us about Switchboard's uh, work. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, so generally, it's a it's a very firmly peer based um, organisation. So they uh, support the LGBT community, um, families, and friends. Um, they deliver a teleweb counselling service. So teleweb, how does that work? Uh, so so you can see the counsellor. No. no, no, no. <laughs> yeah. We wish, no. Um, it's it's a phone service, or you can use like web chat. So like right. people can you know type in like on Messenger and stuff like that. To so it's counselors. not like Skype. Nah, <laughs> nah, not like Skype. Just try. <laughs> <laughs> if only. Um, yeah, and so that works from three p.m. till midnight. Um, and you can call. Uh, where is the number? One eight hundred one eight four five two seven for that number from three pm to midnight. And um, there's also the Out and About program, which is a community visiting visiting scheme for um, LGBT older people. Um, and so it's linking up LGBT folks um, in the local community to visit um, anybody who's in receipt of a home care package. So might be living in an aged care facility or might be living with a disability. Um, and it's about, I guess, fostering relationships in that way. Caroline Riddler, thank you so much for joining us today on no 3CR. It's much appreciated. Thank you for having me. And we've been chatting to Caroline Riddler. She's the coordinator of Switchboard's Queer and Trans, Indigenous and or People of Colour or Faith Project. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.